and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Mark Hopwood. With us today is Mark Lance, professor of philosophy at Georgetown University, and he's here to talk with us about language and power. Mark Lance, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. For, I guess, a number of people, uh, the idea of language and power as a topic might sound somewhat unusual because often the philosophy of language is pursued in abstraction from, as it were, worldly and political concerns. But in your work, I guess you try to bring them together. What connection do you see between issues around meaning and semantics and ethical and political issues? Thanks. Of course, there's a lot. And actually, in a lot of my work, and I'll be talking mostly about joint work with Rebecca Kukla, uh, who's my new colleague at Georgetown, previously at South Florida. And we're, we're looking more at the pragmatics of language, that is to say, at the function of the uses of language in, in discourse. But let's start with this sort of a simple idea that social interactions come from the kinds of people we are and the kinds of social positions we inhabit. So I'm a philosopher, I'm a parent, I'm a partner, uh, I'm a chess player. All of these are, in many ways, skills. That is to say, I know how to teach a class. I know how to have a philosophy conversation. I know how to be a parent to some extent, I suppose. No one really knows how to do that. And in none of those cases should we think of what one's doing as following a set of rules, some sort of a script. Rather, one has internalized an ability to do these things. So in many ways, despite the fact that all of these are things that involve a lot of language and involve using words and talking to people, there still should be thought of in the way that you think of understanding how to dribble a basketball or, or, or to drive a car. These are things that you build into through long practice your habits of life. So one of our claims is that one of the fundamental ways in which people get enculturated into these skills that give us positions in society is through kinds of linguistic transactions. And in particular through what we call second personal transactions or calls where two people recognize one another in particular ways and assign one another implicitly by their practical engagement, assign one another roles that have normative significance for the ongoing social practice. So let's take the very simplest version of this. That We recently wrote a book called Yo and Blow. So the yo or the hail claim like hello, right? So I, I uh, see you on the street and I say, yo, Matt. Now, how do you understand what's happened right there? Well, it's got, we claim two dimensions to it. First of all, I'm recognizing you. I'm expressing my recognition of you in just yelling hello. I'm expressing that I've recognized you, but not recognized you in the way that you'd recognize a piece of furniture or a rock or something like that. I've recognized you precisely as a potential interlocutor, as the kind of being that has normative status that I can interact with in this human way that we do in a social way. I've seen you as a member of the social space. But the hello isn't just that. I mean, that's, you know, I could look at Mark and say, oh, look, there goes Matt. He's a <laughs> social being or something like that. That would be another way of recognizing you. As that. But rather, by yelling hello, the, the recognition is expressed in an act that at the same time calls for the same thing from you, right? So what's the proper response to hello, of course, is hello back. <laughs> Right? So it's a both a recognition of you as a social being and a demand that you recognize me in the same way as one. So this is this structure Hegel called mutual recognition. And it's given explicit form in this transactional performance of hailing someone. Uh, we call these 
things that have this general structure to them in general calls, that is to say second personal interactions that place each other in specific normative positions. We call those calls. Now, so let me step back one, one bit. Uh, a category the philosophers uh, talk about is, of speech act is the performative. So performative is a use of speech that makes something true or that institutes a fact in the world. So contrast the uh, chair of the meeting says the meeting is adjourned and bangs a gavel versus someone outside watching a meeting, seeing everyone stand up and saying to their friend, the meeting is adjourned. That second person is reporting on a fact. They're, they're telling you what's going on socially that it appears that the meeting is adjourned. The chair isn't reporting on a fact at all. He's not telling you something that's already the case. He's making it the case. By saying the meeting is adjourned, he makes it the case. And that's what we mean by a performative. It's a, a speech act that brings something into being. Now, cases like that are sort of pure in that the performative function is existing more or less by itself, not really, but for present purposes, that'll do. Rebecca and I are very interested in structures of language that are not purely performative nor purely reporting, but as it were, mix these together in all sorts of ways. One paper we work on, we look at the way that calls of various sorts can institute new relational contexts between us that have certain kinds of normative asymmetries in them, right? So the, the hello is fundamentally symmetrical. I recognize you, you recognize me. There's nothing in the structure of the hello that's different about that. But if I give you an order, it's not like that at all, right? I mean, this is to give you an order is to call upon you to recognize a kind of differential authority, a kind of authority that I have over you. It's to accept an obligation to perform an action on the basis of my differential power to place that obligation on you, right? I mean, so to follow an order is more than merely to do the thing ordered. I, you could, you know, my mom comes to the house and says, you have to clean your house. I might not recognize that she has a right to tell me how to clean my house anymore, but nonetheless, clean the house. So to follow an order is to acknowledge the differential authority of the orderer to give you an obligation, right? And we try to lay out in a lot of detail the difference between orders, requests, entreaties, various kinds of these structured speech acts that set up particular uh, relations in a particular context. But these things, you know, aren't just episodic in that way, because some kinds of calls structure us into longer-term uh, relations that are also asymmetrical. So think of, you know, you walk into your classroom the first day and you say, okay, everybody come to order and you greet the class. Part of what's going on there is that you're establishing yourself in the role of teacher and them in the role of student. And these are different relations. No matter, you know, different classes may uh, have many different nuances of that, but they're all going to have some kind of differential role that's established. And the point is that as it were, when the, if the students take that call up and respond to it, you know, cooperatively as opposed to, say, just ignoring you and continuing what they're doing or telling you to piss off and someone else walking up to the front of the room or something of this sort, we jointly bring into being, we jointly performatively inaugurate this context of the classroom and hence these roles of teacher and student. And similar things happen, you know, in families, in neighborhoods, the kinds of greeting that you give to neighbors is different than the kinds of greetings you give to strangers and partly institutes the fact that they are neighbors, that they have this kind of role. And then, you know, now we get much closer to the, the very political dimensions, but we, one can analyze the ways that this is, say, gendered, the difference in what it is to recognize someone as a woman in society. And this, of course, will be different in different societies and things, but 
part of the claim is that also roles like having an ethnicity or having a gender or having a sexuality are, are things that are they're skills that are internalized through a process of being recognized and accepting the recognitions of other people in society of particular forms. And of course then that also includes resistance to those because one can refuse or attempt to refuse the ways that people are seeing you. It's not always an easy thing to do. There's a kind of complicated negotiation goes on. But this is sort of the way that our thinking about the structure of language leads down this road to a kind of analysis of power and the habits and practices of linguistic interaction that constitute the underlying powers here. Okay, so let's just try to recap a bit. So you've used the word normative to talk about these kind of frameworks. And I guess one of the things that you mean by that is that when I make this call, I recognize you in a certain way, there's a kind of response Mm-hmm. that's not just, say, the kind of response that people happen to give to that. So it's not just that statistically people tend to respond to each other in these ways. It's that me calling out to you in this way, so saying, yo, Mark, or in some other way that indicates that I recognize you as a professor, as a teacher, actually institutes certain expectations. Mm-hmm. There are certain ways you should respond to that. Or at least as far as I'm concerned. There are there are certain rules that are instituted. No, exactly. I mean, it, a call is always inherently something that you can respond to appropriately or inappropriately. As you say, if I yell, hello, Mark, and you just say, piss off, that, you know, that's, that's rude. I mean, that's a particular kind. It's not just, uh, as you say, not just statistically unusual. It's a dismissal of me that has its own normative significance and, and you know, that I have a right to be offended by. If a woman that you don't know is walking by on the street and you shout out some sort of a cat call, this is an assault of a certain sort, right? It's an inappropriate hail. It's not the kind of hail that you're entitled to give. Though at the same time, it may well constitute her as the sort of social being to whom such things are directed, right? I mean, so part of the bind of, you know, living in a hostile environment, and here we're very close to the the work of Judith Butler, I should say, but uh, the kind of bind that comes from this is that while one can resist the call, one can, you know, tell the person who's, you know, whatever, shouting about your body parts that they're an asshole or something like this, by doing that you're taking up this sort of confrontational stance vis-a-vis people who are responding to you. So as it were, there's always an effect, even if the effect is resisted, because now, you know, one who's been catcalled has no choice but to either accept it and thereby acknowledge that one's an appropriate target of that sort of hail, or to establish a kind of hostile relationship with random passersby on the street. You can't just stay in the kind of normal civil relationship. And more broadly, calls of various sorts sort of bring online, as it were, a particular categories of normative structure. So in real obvious ways, right? So the umpire says, play ball. And I trot out to the, unlikely me, but someone (laughs) trots out to home plate. They're now the batter. All the norms of baseball are now in play. You know, so a ball being thrown near you is now a pitch and you're responsible for hitting it. And, you know, all of that, that all is performatively called online, as it were, by the umpire shouting, you know, play ball. And you acknowledging that by stepping up and taking on this role of batter. And the same sort of thing is going on 
right now, right? I mean, I'm taking on this role of interviewee. You're an interviewer. There's very specific norms of conversation. This isn't like a normal <laughs> chat on the street, right? So we're, we're doing this all the time in the way we acknowledge one another. We're pulling each other into particular categories of roles that have all sorts of uh, rules for proper performance that define us, at least temporarily, as this kind of social being that's in this sort of interaction. So, yeah, it's deeply normative. The kind of analysis we're giving is by no means just an analysis of the causal influence that we have on one another. It's an, an, an analysis of the way that we place one another into a kind of normative space and evaluate one another and make each other subject to particular sorts of evaluations, whether they be evaluations as a bad batter or a good interviewer or whatever. I mean, these are whole different categories of normative space. So I want to pick up on something you said earlier, which is the idea of resistance mm -hmm. to these kinds of calls, these kinds of frameworks. And it seems like that might be a different kind of resistance to maybe the more straightforward resistance to something like you saying something about me that just isn't true. Right. So you refer to me as Australian and I can just set you straight on that. I can resist. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> but it seems like the kinds of frameworks you're talking about and the kind of resistance that's in question might be quite different in that my resistance to being called on in a certain way, being mm -hmm. pulled into a certain normative framework, might not be the kind of resistance where I'm exactly contradicting what you just said. I'm not saying that you said something about me that's just false. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. What, what's involved in this kind of resistance? Sure. So there's two dimensions of this I think are, are useful. The first is the way that both uh, sort of descriptive and performative functions interact. And then secondly, the way that whole bunches of <laughs> social practice that appear very distant from one another can come together. So let's take an, a, a different example. Like I respond to you as male, okay? Now, that's obviously got descriptive features. We all have habits of assigning people genders on the basis of, you know, sort of obvious features of body morphology and whatnot. And, you know, in sort of more specialized contexts, things like genetics might come into play. But in general, we just sort of look at the shape of your body and I interpret you as... But it's not just a description, right? I'm not, I, I mean, to say that you're a guy... <laughs> is not just to describe the structure of your physical body, obviously. It's to place you as having a certain kind of social role and to have certain expectations about the way we're going to talk to one another. I mean, there's a huge amount of data about this. People talk to babies from the beginning of life differently depending on how, on what gender they perceive them to be. I mean, and uh, in studies, you know, you, you speak significantly in higher, just in pitch, to perceive female babies than you do to perceive male babies. You're, you talk much more gently, you, you use different kinds of examples, and this is just absolutely habitual. Everyone does it, and almost no one's aware of. I once talked to a chair of my department who insisted that he treated male and female babies exactly the same, and then I showed him the data, and he's just like, oh, shit. <laughs> I guess I don't. But that's the point. I mean, these skills are internalized in such a way that you're not aware of what you're doing. They're invisible to you, as it were. Uh, Heidegger calls this withdrawing of until you get filmed or something. Um, take another example. There was a study about 15 years ago by the American Association of University Women in which they filmed professors taking questions from students, and they measured completely objective things like how long you let a student talk before you interrupted them. And there was a huge disparity between male and female students, right? 
And what was fascinating was that the disparity was still there even when you just looked at uh, female professors teaching women's studies courses. So people who talked about these disparities as a theme all the time were still doing it. When I treat you, when I respond to you as a guy, and however that is, of course there's different ways of doing this, maybe I, I'm somewhat less stereotypical about it than some people, nonetheless I'm interpreting you in ways that make certain kinds of behavior seem normal, certain kinds seem odd, certain kinds seem worthy of comment, others just go without saying. There's a certain expectation of assertiveness and things of this sort. That's a great deal harder to resist, that sort of call, partly because it comes from everywhere all the time. Everyone in society that sees you, you know, so the way you're dressed, the way you present yourself is going to take you to be a guy. And if you wanted, for whatever reason, to reject the collection of normative positionings that amount to being masculine in today's society, that's much harder. You can't just, you know, um, Actually, thinking of the uh, life of Brian. <laughs> so, no, I'm not. I'm a woman. It's like, no, you're not. <laughs> right? I mean, you can correct me and just tell me you're not Australian, and I'll believe it and accept it and respond to you differently. And very little probably hung on that in the first place. If you just say you're a guy, not a guy, you know, and for people to whom this is important, this is a huge struggle because to get other people to give uptake to that, right, for this structure to be one of mutual recognition. You have to both call on me to recognize you differently, but then I have to give uptake to it because the idea is to get a social practice going in which we relate to each other differently. And that's a very hard thing to do when it comes to something that's so much a part of all of our interactions as gender. The other dimension of this is what I call uh, the dispersal of power. In all sorts of cases, right, the kind of structural relationships that we have are a function not just of the immediate way we're relating, but of a, you know, a huge range of social interactions from all over space. So um, an example that I used in a recent paper, uh, in the District of Columbia, there's a process for applying to go to any of the different public schools in the district. And in, in one sort of superficial sense, it's completely equitable. Anybody in the district can apply to go to any school and, you know, get put, eventually you fill out all the forms and you get put into a lottery. But if you start looking at it in more detail, well, the better schools are all in richer neighborhoods because the people in the neighborhood contribute to the school in addition to the regular funding it gets. So first of all, you have to be able to get your kid to that neighborhood, which if you are living yourself in a poor neighborhood far across town, there is no busing. You have to figure out how to get them there. You may have a job that starts before school starts. How do you get your elementary school kid across town? Secondly, the bureaucratic process of applying for this is very complicated. It's the kind of thing that for, you know, a philosophy graduate student or professors, nothing. You're used to filling out forms. You know how to do these things. Uh, for many people in society, it's intimidating and, and frightening and things of this sort. There's an interview at many of the schools and all manner of kinds of what are called social capital come into play there. If the parents are not themselves educated, they may be very uncomfortable in the interview and discussing their child. They may not present them in, in a nice, organized, tidy package the way that some of us are skilled at doing. And so when you look at the relationship between me, say, and someone else, some other parent from a very different socioeconomic background, maybe different gender, maybe different race, in our relation as two parents of children in the D.C. schools, right, I mean, there's, there's a huge power disparity there. 
in effect, I know how to use this system. Part of my skill is someone who can manipulate and, and smoothly just walk through this district bureaucracy. There's another person for whom this is alien and scary and hostile and things of this sort and who is going to feel that at any moment their kid could be out of this good school and into one of the disastrous schools in D.C. So there's a relationship between us that maybe both of us want to reject. Maybe both of us would like to change that. But we can't just do that ourselves, right? Because this was constituted by, you know, all of these things like my education and her education and racism in the city and economic disparity in the city and access to transportation and facts about the way jobs are structured in the city, and indeed the geography of the city. I mean, all of these factors are kind of going together to position us. So the idea of resisting, you know, <laughs> it's just absurd to say, oh, well, let's just not treat you as a poor black woman. <laughs> I mean, that's just denial, right? I mean, that's just insulting. Uh, if one wants to resist this, one has to organize to take apart a wide range of structures of power and to change all manner of modes of interaction. I mean, it's all built ultimately out of these kinds of direct interpersonal transactions, but there's you know millions of them going into the institution of this difference between the two parents in the school system. And to take that apart is, you know, well, this is the job of organizers, <laughs> not, not uh, sort of an easy correction that a philosopher is gonna make. So we've been talking about different cultural identities that people take on or different social roles that people play and the way that communicating with one another helps to maybe both define and reinforce these different social roles and cultural identities that we have. Intuitively, it seems like there's kind of a difference between some of them. So, for example, we talked about being a neighbor, being a man, being poor. So it seems like some of these cultural identities are kind of things we choose to be, you know, from nine to five, I play the role of boss in the corporation. Whereas, at least on one way of understanding the term man, I mean, I don't choose to be a man, I was born a man. And it seems like that could be a significant difference when it comes to trying to change or challenge or take a critical attitude towards some of these cultural identities and roles. If they're things we choose, it seems like it's easier to, well, we can choose to do something else. If it's not a role we choose to play, it seems like it's maybe more difficult. Absolutely. I mean, so a couple things. First of all, you're, you're right. I mean, there are kinds of identities you fairly directly choose to take on. I mean, I decided to change my major from music to philosophy. Uh, that had lots of downstream implications. Uh, you choose to take a particular job or you choose to sit down and play a game of chess now, right? I mean, which brings into play a whole bunch of normative systems. I don't think it's quite right to say that I was born a man in this social sense. But by the same token, I certainly didn't choose it, right? I mean, it's even if it's ultimately socially instituted, it was instituted through all of these millions and millions of transactions with other people that began at the moment I was born, and certainly has to do with biology. I mean, it's a complex interplay here. Uh, and it certainly wasn't a moment in which I said, oh, I think I shall be a man. <laughs> it wasn't like that at all. And as you're, you're right, I mean, that to a large extent, makes that a much harder kind of identity to challenge or revise. I mean, there are many ways in which I'd like to revise the structures that go with that. And of course, for some people, it becomes a completely untenable self-identity, and there is an attempt to decide not to be. But it's never simple because it was constituted through so much. I do want to say one other complexity is that it's often easy to misunderstand 
the choice cases, right? And to say, um, you know, well, you choose to take a particular job. So you often see in, you know, in debates about, you know, say, sweatshops or something like that, you say, well, you know, can just choose not to take this job if you don't like the working conditions. Well, of course, the reality may be that your actual choices, that is to say those things that you actually have the relevant skills and the relevant social positioning to make happen, are to take this job or starve and watch your kids starve. And if that's the case, then there's something a little bit absurd about calling that a choice, right? Or at least one wants to say that the normative implications of its being a choice insofar as it is are very different from the normative implications of a choice where you have in fact arrayed before you a a vastly broader range of of options with less dramatic consequences and things of that sort. So part of the thought about the virtue of analyzing all this complexity of the pragmatic structure that lies underneath particular local performances is to make more explicit what's actually going on in in some of these cases that we might superficially say, well, you know, Lance decided to go to Pittsburgh for graduate school versus Harvard for graduate school, and this person decided to work in the sweatshop 24 hours a day rather than starve to death. Well, you can call both of those choices, and in some sense they both are, but you're really obscuring more than you're illuminating by simply treating them as both choices in that way. What we need to see is that these are very, very different structures of power. Yeah, maybe in other words, even if it's the case that we don't have complete autocratic control over the nature and structure of these social roles and cultural identities, maybe we can at least, by taking a step back, make ourselves aware of the fact that we're actively involved in creating them and and making them the way they are. Maybe that can be a first step towards thinking about how we want to continue doing that or not continue doing that in the future. Absolutely. I mean, ultimately, the point of analyzing any of these things, for me, um, is to find the points at which it's effective to intervene, at which we can actually accomplish something and broaden the space of positive freedom, of the actual ability of people to live flourishing lives. And I think that's actually, for philosophers, a really important methodological point, right? Because you, you hear a lot of times people say, well, what are philosophers doing? Well, we're analyzing concepts. Well, yeah, I mean, I analyze concepts. But that's a very strange thing to just say you're just doing. For one thing, why the ones we, you know, why knowledge and freedom and this and that? Why not book bag? Let's analyze book bag. I'm sure it's hard. I'm sure giving necessary and sufficient conditions for something being a book bag is hard. Wittgenstein taught us that. The question you always have to ask is, what's the point of this analysis? Why are we digging into some particular details of some structure? Is it merely some kind of uh, idle intellectual curiosity? Well, there's different answers you could give to that, right? I mean, when, you know, when a physicist or an engineer tries to give a precise account of something, we're fairly clear about what's going on. They're trying to give either, you know, a broad predictive and explanatory theory, or they're trying to find principles that allow for, you know, bridges to stand up and not fall down and and the like. For me, the guiding goal, however technical and abstract and uh, linguistic it all becomes, the guiding goal really is hoping to contribute to a project of political liberation, to find the points at which when and where these structures of social interaction have become coercive, have become stultifying, have made it impossible for for people to live uh, meaningful and productive lives, I want to find those points, the points that are vulnerable to resistance, 
either individually or collectively, and to think about strategic ways that we can go about transforming the ways we relate to one another so as to make society better. So I, I really see, going back to your very first question, I see the philosophy of language as I do it, uh, as that I'm interested in it, as fundamentally a contribution to a project of liberation. And, uh, and I think that the work that Rebecca and I have been doing has some small uh, things to add for those kind of projects. So you've just said something about this in your previous answer, but I'd like to get you to expand upon mm-hmm. it. We've talked about resistance to these various kinds of roles. We've talked about changing things. And one thing that one might wonder is, well, what's a good reason to resist? We don't want to resist every single role that we're called upon to play. And we might think that sometimes we can be wrong to resist. So, for example, a student might want to resist the role that the professor's placing her in as a student. But in fact, that's just the role she has to be in to learn. Mm-hmm. And she needs to come to understand that. Now, you mentioned some words in your last answer to do with practices becoming stultifying, preventing us from living meaningful lives. But I I wonder if you could expand a bit. What are the reasons for which we might seek to change these practices? Is there anything more than us just not liking them? Well, I think there's more than not liking them. I think there's... uh... I I take seriously normative questions of what we should be striving for. I certainly think freedom is a pretty fundamental goal, but at the same time it's quite abstract and and meaningless in in abstraction from a particular context. I mean, and to a certain extent I don't think there is an answer at this abstract a level. You know, what would, sort of in general, what's a good reason to resist a practice? I mean, I can say, well, if it's harmful and not conducive to a flourishing life, but that's just to put a label on it, really. It's not to say anything. So I think we have to look at particular cases. So, you know, if we want to look at the criminal justice system, which I think should be resisted, well, I think it should be resisted because, you know, hundreds of innocent people are shot and, and tens of thousands of innocent people are imprisoned every year in this country uh, because the percentage of black men who go to prison is vastly higher than the percentage of those who commit imprisonable offenses who go to prison in this country. Something like 50% of African-American men in this country spend time in the prison system, and this has negative effects on their ability to get jobs and to live lives. You know, so, I, I mean, I can just carry on about these kind of harms of, uh, you know, in this case, or resisting certain kinds of definitions of the family, right? And I can talk about the harm that's done to people of different gender identifications or sexualities. Uh, You know, I can tell you (laughs) moving stories about the way that friends of mine are excluded from, say, going to visit their partner in the hospital who's dying, who they've lived with for 10 years, but they have no right to go to the hospital to be with them because society has defined their relationship in a particular way. Well, you know, so in particular cases, I'm going to try and appeal to your ability to see certain things as harms, as damages to a good and meaningful life. In sort of bigger cases, I would uh, try to convince you that certain modes of economic relationship are fundamentally alienating in the way Marx talks about and that we ought to reconceptualize uh, our modes of productive activity, which is to say we should resist capitalism as it's structured today. But I mean, you know, in any of these cases, I think I have to make an argument that draws on 
our engagement with particular practices that draws on particular harms that can be seen in this case. So I don't think it's helpful to give sort of a, a generic answer to what's a reason to resist a practice. Here's a reason to resist this practice. Here's a harm it's doing. Here's a harm. And you're absolutely right that you can be wrong. You can think that superficially, you know, something is, oh, this is harmful. Of course, and then, you know, later be convinced that, no, actually, this is the long run effect here is to make you into a person that you can recognize as a, a fuller, better life and things. These are all case by case. You know, we have to work out these details and then we have to figure out how to, um, change our modes of interaction in ways that hopefully uh, make for a better world. And, and I, I don't ever see it as a project that's going to be finished, right? I mean, I, it's not that I have a, <laughs> an a priori blueprint for the perfect society. And, and I, no, it's, it, this is a kind of messy case-by-case -case rebuilding of structures as we're going along. And um, presumably once we do start rebuilding them and come to freer and, and more productive and more flourishing lives, we're going to recognize other things that we were earlier not in a position to even so much as notice and we'll work on that. But, you know, sort of being a part of that, that sweep of history is to me what, you know, what's the thing to do. Mark Lance, thank you for recognizing both of us as interviewers. <laughs> thank you. It was wonderful. To listen to future episodes of Elucidations, you may consult our website at philosophy.uchicago.edu slash podcasts.